Hello, and welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinStuff.net. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. Available in video format at FunkinStuff.net and on YouTube, Truth and Rhythm can also be enjoyed on the go in its audio podcast edition from FunkinStuff.net, iTunes, and other leading providers. I'm your host, Scott Dr. GX Goldfine, musicologist and author of Everything is on the One, The First Guy to Funk. If you don't have your copy, you better get on over to Amazon and pick one up. Start the new year off right. With your watching or listening, as always, I thank you very much for your continued interest and support. And in this case, you've tuned in for another great episode because my guest is Glenn Murdoch, co-founder and singer of the groundbreaking funk rock band Mother's Finest. With a lineup that could seamlessly and authentically swing from guitar-fueled riffage to bass-driven grooves, to soulful R&B, sometimes within the same song, Mother's Finest notched three consecutive gold-selling albums in the late 1970s. Fronted by fiery singer Joyce Kennedy, who also enjoyed solo success in the 1980s, the band's assortment of fantastic songs included You'll Like It, Here, Give You All the Love Inside of Me, Baby Love, Truth Will Set You Free, can't Fight the Feeling, Don't Want to Come Back, and the hit ballad, Love Changes. In the process, the group became famous worldwide for its ferocious live shows. Mother's Finest has continued to deliver knockout shows up to the present day, and also released new albums in the 1980s, 1990s, 2000s, and most recently in 2015. The intense funk rock force of Mother's Finest a daring band that stuck to its guns with an exciting blend of genres, despite the many obstacles cast in their path through the years, continues to shine brightly as we head into 2018, a fact of which we should all feel very grateful for. I know I do. I'm delighted to welcome Glenn Murdoch, the core mother in Mother's Finest, to Truth and Rhythm. How are you, Glenn? I'm pretty good. How are you, sir? I'm doing well, thank you. Coming to us from Atlanta, Georgia, right? Yeah, Stone Mountain, Stone Mountain, Georgia, Funk Rock, Georgia. That's what we call it. Yeah, very, very good. It's been cold, but I'm sure you're keeping it hot with uh, some good uh, shows uh, you've been playing recently. Oh yeah, we've been uh, we've been working pretty pretty hard and steady. You know, it's been fun. That's a beautiful thing. You guys are still keeping it, uh, keeping it going like you are. Yeah, I mean, it is rewarding, you know, and uh, we're we're just trying to change, make it better, make it a little different, you know, with the same, you know, attitude, you know. So um, we have a couple of uh, releases that uh, we can talk about too. That I like for people to get into because you 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 mentioned uh, you'll like it here, and we have a uh, these people over in England, and it is on on the website. I gotta I gotta get you hip to that, but um, it's called Anthology uh, Love Changes, and it's got like thirty seven songs from the seventies and eighties on it you know you'll like it yeah oh you got it look at that yeah there you go fantastic <laughs> you are a fan aren't you oh this is an awesome set this is a terrific terrific compilation 
Yeah, it is. I like it. I really do. I mean, you know, it's uh, you know because we did it, and it takes you down memory lane, so to speak, and and um, and 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 it's also some silly stuff in there from from the way we were thinking, you know, love, peace, and happiness, and you know, um, but it's good though. It's got some good music, and and Joy sounds fantastic as usual, even you know, especially back then. Pretty yeah. amazing. We'll touch on this one again before we uh, wrap it up. Um, but Glenn, I want to jump in and uh, kind of get uh, viewers acquainted with uh, more of your background. So how did you you first get into music going back even before Mother's Finest? Uh, um, Joyce and I met in Chicago and uh, we were doing this sort of duet type thing, you know, uh, um, we were doing like show clubs, you know, and that was the big thing in Chicago at the time, right along through the late 60s. Wow. And um, um, that's when Sly and the Family Stone and Jimi Hendrix and, and the music scene was changing. And so we were doing, uh, for lack of a better word, a kind of Vegasy type type act, we were doing covers and we were wearing tuxedos and gowns. And we actually went over to the uh, Far East uh, and did a couple of tours over there. We were working and working pretty good too, um, in between our jobs. And when we saw Sly Stone and, and then I started getting familiar with Hendrix and in Chicago, there was a, a band called Baby Huey and the Babysitters. Um, and Rush Street was opening up and it was, plenty of acid to go around and and uh, we're all opening up our heads to, you know, um, about different and self-contained mostly. And this 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 revolt of uh, doing uh, original music, you know, uh, getting away from the corporate music at the at the time. You know, you could uh, Joyce when she did our first records she would go into this massive studio. I think it was Mercury, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, there would be like a like a like a thirty piece orchestra, and she would sing in a booth, and and they would just throw it down right then and right there. She was she was told uh, she was given the melody and uh, and the script, and and she would go in there, and you know, in a couple of hours, well, I'd probably take her all day. Nothing like it 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 grew to be. To be self-contained to sit and write your own stuff, your own feelings, and you were usually singing somebody else's stuff. And then when you went out to to do shows, you would do covers. And so, I don't know this idea. We we did our last tour uh, uh, in the southeast. We went everywhere over not the southeast. The uh, uh, I mean, what is that? The, the the over in the east. I mean, I mean Bangkok, Thailand, uh, Japan. Oh, Okinawa, yeah, we, we we would go over there for a month and we would do these tours. They were like USO tours. We do a lot of military, you know, mostly. And then we do some hotels and and it was all uh, spit, shine and glory, you know. Um, and when we came back, we didn't want to go back to our jobs anymore. And so we said, let's let's do a band. Let's let's see if we can do a band like like Sly and Hendrix and. We were naturally into rock, um, and uh, 
of, of R&B, gospel, jazz. Chicago was a great blues town. So anyway, what we decided to do is make a band, you know, and uh, we, we, we didn't know how we were going to do it with two front people. Really into, into being front as much as uh, making sure that Joyce was doing it. And, and I didn't play any instruments, so I just had to be an annoyance to anybody who came in contact with you. Um, and, and it was from there that we decided uh, we went on some gigs as just like a duet type of, for lack of a better word. And then when we got down to, we did a gig in Dayton, Ohio, where we met Mo and um, uh, 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 we decided, uh, for some strange reason, we, we decided that we wanted to do um, original music. We, we started writing right away, but it wasn't, you know, every place we worked is no, you do covers, we, we do covers here. And maybe we sneak in some kind of uh, original piece of, of uh, material, which was relative to a lot of stuff that we were doing. You know, when you, when you wrote originals back in those days, it was always trying to sound like what was going on, you know? So, so um, when we met Mo, Mo was the first uh, uh, incarnate of Mother's Finest. And uh, he was 17 years old. We were all barely, you know, I don't know what, what got into us, but especially Joyce and I, I mean, we, uh, we were afforded traveling around. So that's what we did. We traveled around and went to different towns and ended up in Dayton, Ohio, like I said, and then Mo. Uh, we saw Mo playing in a, in a, in a band called the Raspberry Blues and he was the only standout in uh, um, I don't know if it was karma uh, or whatever, but uh, we, we, we had a conversation with him and we also had a conversation with this one guy who wanted us to play in his band uh, down in uh, uh, Florida. So we were on the road. I mean, we fought for all intents and purposes. We were doing the hippie thing in the car and, and drove down to uh, Florida. And this band didn't like what we were do, what we were about. Um, to be honest with you, it was a, it was a race thing. They were not really into uh, having uh, black lead singers, much less two. So we did a trip all the way down there with the bass player of the band who's, who who's get guaranteed us who was going to get into this band. And he apologized and and we stayed at his house and we decided what to do next is we was going to make our own band. So um, Joyce, we were still kind of working the beach, so to speak, and we were doing these little clubs. And then we met this bass player who had just came from Vietnam. and. Um, uh, he was playing in the club, and we said, you know, we want to start a band. Are you interested? And he says, not really, because it just came from Vietnam. I'm still kind of blown away. But I have a brother, and he's working down there at the hump room on the beach uh, with Tommy Strand and the Upper Hand, which was like about a 10-piece 10, 10 orchestra-type band. Everybody was into these show bands. So we said, okay, you know, his name's Jerry. to go down there and 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 uh, he had spoken to his brother, and there he was, and with a white suit on and a vest, and and his big enormous afro, and and uh, we talked to him, and he was, I mean, he and Mo were the same age. Joyce now a little older, so so he was seventeen as well, 
but he was all down with it, man. But he was so young that, that his parents, his mother, was going on the road with this hippie group, and you had white people and black people in the same. And he would send, he's got about, <laughs> he's, he's, it's 12 of them, you know, and half of them are all guys. And he's, and I think he's the youngest male. So all his brothers were kind of not digging it. And then and mom said, go and get my son. We were living, we were living in this house that we had rented. Uh, I don't know how that was, it was so long ago. We were in this house and we drug him to this house and we rehearsed with him. It was actually a bass player's house, I'm sorry. The bass player that abandoned us. And so we had to find a new drummer and a new bass player. So we got Wizard. And it was Jerry's at time and try to make the, uh, um, a long story shorter. Then we needed a drummer and we marched around Miami Beach. We got this guy who was, was, was almost blind, but boy, could he play. And he was, and he was innovative too, because he was, he was sort of miking up all of his, his drums without microphones. Uh, I don't know how he did it. But that's how we knew where he was when somebody told us about him. I forgot his name. What's him? We call him Blind. I mean, you know, I think that's what everybody in the neighborhood was calling him because he had he had glasses like Coke bottles, you know. But but he could freak. So we heard this giant sound coming from, from and you know, would you be interested in joining our group? And he said, yeah, and. Um, at the time, we had to 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 uh, yeah, making a long a long story shorter. Then we went back to this went to this club with this band, and we said we have a band too, and we want to audition. And the guy said, no, absolutely not. So we went to his competition, which was called um, the Flying Machine in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and. Um, that particular club was called the Scene, and it was like a big hippie club, and it was huge. It had, it had um, uh, uh, bean bags for chairs, and it was really cool, you know. But the Flying Machine was a smaller place, but it was on fire. It was electric, and uh, Paul, Paul kind of knew of us because we were scavenging around trying to find uh, musicians. And uh, we said, Paul, we want to audition for you. And he was like, I don't know, guys, you know, uh, without John, which was the bass player that everybody knew. So without John, you know, I don't know. He's, I said, you know, just try us out, you know. And so he said, OK. And we auditioned for him. He said, well, you guys sound I'm, uh, good enough. I'll work you guys next weekend. Not this weekend, but next weekend. So we had a chance to rehearse uh, with our three pieces. And um, we did, we rehearsed our brains out, stayed up all night, you know, and did lots of, lots of uh, acid and smoked a lot of um, marijuana. That's what it's called nowadays. And uh, um, we rehearsed and when we went back and, and played that weekend, he didn't feel the necessity of booking anybody else. So he said, you know, well, uh, are you guys available next week? And we said, we're like available, period, you know. That was the only club that we actually auditioned and got the job. Worked for 16 weeks in that club. It was Joyce, myself, Wizard. Uh, the drummer didn't last. Um, so we um, imported this 
uh, uh, Douglas from from Dayton, Ohio, that that uh, uh, he had been begging for a little uh, for uh, to play with us. So so we imported him and a, and a keyboard player and a sax player. But the keyboard player and the sax player were heroin addicts. We found out, and uh, they weren't really in, into the music as much as they was in getting stoned and getting high and and uh, not like we weren't, but not on. They were too hard for us, so we sent them home. And so it was Douglas and and um, um, Wizard and Mo, three pieces, and Joyce and myself. And do stuff. Uh, Joyce and I were very into vocals, you know, and because it was two of us, we would do a lot of harmonies. We'd do a lot of horn parts and stuff like that. So anyway, I'm working 16 weeks in this club. And in the interim, everybody on South Beach came to see us in that club. We had lines going around the corner. And, and then there were competitions, you know, this, these bands wanted to come in and three pieces, they couldn't believe it, it was three pieces and two vocalists and they were making all this well, noise. Glenn, what were you calling yourselves at that point? Um, we sat down. I don't know when we decided Mother's Finest, but we were sitting. We were in uh, John's house, kicked out of his house, and we said, "Well, well, well what do we want to name this?" And we were into. Uh, uh, we were going to name it Master's Children, and um, because of mysticisms at the time, we were still getting kind of stoned, but 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 uh, uh, these masters over in India. Were um, what we were we was uh, uh, seeking, you know, at the time. But we still didn't at the time. But we said, no, nah, that's not a good name. You know, it sounds like Masa's children or whatever. So we said that, that's not good. So we said, well, what do we want to? What kind of music are we want to make? You know, it's not jazz, not pop, it's not rock, it's not R and B. We just want to make some, 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 some. Just you know, it was it was uh, uh, undescribable. So we wanted to be motherfuckers. <laughs> you can scratch that out if you want to. That's that's. Uh, I guess we were kind of stoned at the time. We said we want to be motherfuckers. That's what we want to be. We want everybody to know that this band is uh, mother's finest is, is is motherfuckers. And so we can't name ourselves that. So what are we going to do? So we took the initials. And with the initials, we came up. Joyce came up with Mother's Finest. Um, I put in, we wanted to be super motherfuckers, so we we put a, a Superman shield around MF, and there it was, you know. And since then, that's what we've tried to be. And it's been just uh, 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 we didn't get the notoriety because we were doing something that. I must do it, it uh, unbeknownst to our own badass selves that we 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 thought it was a free fall that we can make our own music we can be individual and we could um come at you with this music which we thought was really good stuff you know um and it's uh you know like i said we were flower children hippie type you know um and very black it, it, it mixed at the same time with Mo and uh, um, eventually with BB. So um, um, 
we just thought that we could do our own music. But and 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 when we got our first record deal, the second record deal, let's skip over that first one. Uh, the first one was with RCA with with this very corny guy. Um, we did tie yellow river around the old oak tree, <laughs> Mathis, and I forgot the other guys, Dave Mathis, and yeah, I can't think of the other guy's name. But um, but I mean, hey, we was like, okay, you know, and it gave us a lot of coke. Oh, Dave, Dave, which was it? Was it Dave Appel or Hank? Uh, Dave, uh, Dave Medras. Yeah, it could be Dave. Uh, I can't think, man. This stuff goes so. So I'll think of it in a minute. But Dave and something or another. But anyway, they were. They wrote "Lion Sleeps Tonight," and um, they were doing "Round the uh, Tie Yellow Room Around the Old Oak Tree." They had monster hits, you know. So uh, they signed us up with RCA for two records. Uh, the first record got out. The second record didn't. And in, and and and. The reason why it didn't is because of our insistence. We didn't want it to go out because we didn't. The production was horrible. Um, we got in the studio and we went up to New York and we had all of our original material. We did all of our original stuff and we recorded it and then we gave it over to them. They went up to New York. We went to Atlanta and they stayed in New York and they commenced to changing a lot of stuff, overdubbing horns. We didn't have one horn in our group, never. And they, and, and they put more background singers on there and they changed the arrangements some kind of way where they were putting, putting all these musicians on there. And we just, and we went up to our manager's office, his name was Hugh Rogers, went up to his, his office. And uh, we were just as happy as we could be. This is our first time we, we put out our original music. And he played the thing, and we literally, we cried. All of us sat around in this office. We had champagne and everything. We finished the champagne, smoked a couple of joints. And we said, oh, we don't ever want it to hit the streets. Well, by that time, of course, we didn't have any control over where it was going to hit the streets, and it did. But but we, we told him definitely we're not going to do any, any promo on the second one. And uh, more interesting, but we didn't. We went into uh, anxious to see how they was gonna screw that one up. So, so we, um, so we decided that we were just gonna do live. You know, we were doing live. We were we were traveling all over the southeast, uh, up to D.C. and and maybe as far as New York. You know, we didn't do a lot in in in, in L.A. or California, but the, the southeast was really good for us. And we travel and get in our vans and we just travel, you know. And then we were playing in this club in, in Atlanta and um, um, all the Atlanta based rock groups were there. We would only, we did the rock clubs, you know, which was, there was no group like ours. It was so unique, you know, because we were, like I said, we obviously predominantly black and we were doing our own uh, brand of funk rock. And then uh, this guy, this, 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 he was a male guy too. And he had been there to see, I think we were playing Leonard Skinner was there or uh, I'm pretty sure it was Leonard Skinner before anybody knew anything about him. We are playing in a club. So this guy comes in and uh, uh, he's like a male. He worked in the male department at CBS Records. So he gets us in a, in a, asked permission to come back to the dressing room. He said, do you guys, 
have a record deal. I said, no, we don't have a record deal. I mean, we don't want a record deal because, you know, these guys messed up our record and we don't want to go through that again. So um, the next day, this guy, Tom Warman, came down. Tom Warman is famous for um, Ted Nugent and uh, what's the big guy's name? Um, but I won't do that. Uh, I can't. Uh, Meatloaf. And a, and a hair band from from L.A. I can't think of the name name of them. But anyway, he was he, he was a good producer. He was one probably one of the best producers that we had had. And we eventually found out. So um, he came to us and he said, uh, "So you guys don't have a unit signed with anybody else?" And I said, "Well, we got a manager, you know, but you know, we're not real happy with him right now for getting us into this situation." So he says, "So." Uh, so you guys want to do another record? We said, no, not really. He said, do you have any original material? I said, yeah, we're always writing, you know, we got a bunch of stuff. And he said, so why don't you want to record? I said, because, you know, it's all fixed. I mean, these guys, and we told him what the story was. And he said, I promise you, guys play what you're playing and how you're playing tonight that I just heard, you know, I'm only going to make it better. I'm not going to tamper with it. I'm not going to change anything. So so we believed him. We went into the studio with him and we cut, cut our first uh, first record with him. Very pleased with it. Tom was a great guy. We fought a lot in the studio because we wanted to do some things. He wanted us to be a little harder than we were. And CBS was very, very excited about what he had, what he had done. Epic records. Promised that they were going to make us bigger than the Beatles. Bigger than Led Zeppelin. I mean, I'm, I'm not uh, I am not messing with the truth. They, we were in, a, in, in in the auditorium, and they had us slides that this this is going to be. And it and and I do believe it would have happened too if they would have left us alone. But they, but it was a black group and and trying to rock. What are we going to do with these people? You know, who's going to play them? You know, it was special time. Then that you know you 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 the Earth Wind and Fire told us you know what are you you know why 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 you didn't put no funk on the record who's going we laughed it was Verdine I got to I got to throw him under the bus but he said he got in my face and he said why didn't you put any funk on the record and I'm going what do you define funk you know yeah. there's and, funk on there and and I know uh, yeah I mean it's like you know, I said, and then I would point out a couple of songs. I said, this ain't funky to you? He says, well, yeah, it's okay. But, but you know, it's got too much rock in it. We had Gamble and Huff come up, come up, come up to, uh, to the studio and, and, uh, uh, they said that they wanted to produce us and they gave us a lot of material and we was going, we just, this, this is not us. Which, and, and I think in the interim, we made a decision that, because I mean, we would call up in the big man's office, you know, this 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 head guy in the black department of CBS who was located on the seventh floor. He called up and he told us, he says, he says, kids will not accept you. Uh, uh, there will never be a poster. Uh, how did he put that? There'll never be a poster of Michael Jackson on the back of of of. Uh, of a bedroom door of a of a white teenager, and then of course, Michael made a liar out of him after they went through the whole uh, uh, the the political struggle that they have to just to get him on MTV and the rest of it. 
you know. Uh, so, so you know, you have to make a decision at the time, and we did consciously, unconsciously, or whatever, that we were going to play the music that we wanted to play and we enjoy playing. Even when Joyce went and did a solo record, she she stepped out of the box. You know, the music was fantastic, but they wanted her to dress a certain way. They wanted her to try to control what she was doing. And she ran back to the group going like, you know, this is it's silly. Why would anybody want to do that when there's a thousand people at a, at a time doing it and another thousand trying to break down the doors to, to do what they're doing, you know? Uh, uh, why don't these people get the, uh, a different, you know, and we can make a difference. But there were some big people in the, in the, in the, in the uh, record business that had made up their minds that this should not happen. I mean, point blank. I mean, years later, we found out some big people. I'm not going to name them because they could still send people after me. But uh, uh, they decided that um, music would change everything. It would change uh, and and you have to notice that 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 if you were if you were too much uh, diversity, then they, they uh, one guy described white people on one side, black people on the other side of the street, and then there's a spotted dog running down running down the middle of the street. There's no which side to go to, you know. Well, we knew exactly where we wanted to be. Middle of the street was just fine with us, but it wasn't. But in the record business, when they had all the control then you had to choose um, which side of the street you were going on. And we were told by this big guy in the record company, listen, I'm not going to make it doing this, doing this type of music, you know. Well, we made it a lot further than, than, they, than they anticipated, you know, than they thought, you know. And we, we could have made it a lot further, but we, they, 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 we were, um, like, for instance, um, Let's put pictures on the uh, when we send this send this uh, single to the DJs. Let's not put a picture on there. And the DJs got the record. Oh, who is this? Well, that's right. I saw it. Very good. And um, they played it. Oh, I liked it. I like this is the single. And we played the single. They played the single. Played the single. And this guy, that was a DJ in in Chicago, when he found out <laughs> that we were predominantly black. He immediately stopped playing the record, and I think I think the the word was out that this is not, because we were playing on rock stations, you know. There it was. So again, we were faced with um, the record company saying you need to do at least something like Earth, Wind, and Fire is doing, or like uh, or like the Commodores, or like or like the Isley Brothers, and we were just like they're already doing that. You know, hey, can, can, I, can, I, can I jump in for a second? Sure. Yeah. So, um, man, it's, it's infuriating. It, it always infuriates me to hear, you know, stories like that where, you know, those kinds of external uh, forces affect the music and affect, um, you know, who gets to hear it and where it goes and, you know, how it ends up coming out and getting to people's ears. It's just, it's maddening. But, um, I want to um, just mention that first record before we uh, move on, because it was a really strong record uh, in 1976, Mother's Finest. 
that included uh, Give You All the Love inside of me, which I don't care what Verdine says, that song is funky. Oh, man. And, um, <laughs> also, Fly With Me. And uh, yeah. Rain is a really good hard rocking tune. Oh, and sure. um, in line with what you're talking about, Glenn, you have that track in there called Niggas Can't Sing uh, Rock and Roll. So yeah. you were already like confronted with that situation when you actually put a record out like that, that spoke to that. How, how was the response when you did that? Um, so and we were working at this club and this, and we were, um, we were doing our music and people in that club. This is how that song is sort of, uh, uh, it was. It didn't start out that way. It started out with "What You Do with What You Got." It was written by somebody in China, and uh, I just loved the how the the. It was a heavy funk groove, uh, but the words were very silly, you know. So we messed around with it a little bit. And we were playing in this club, and then this woman, she was very very drunk, and we were down in uh, Columbia. South Carolina, and she had gotten wasted. And she jumped up and she says, why y'all singing that white man's music? And we was gonna, and, and I said, and belligerent as one could be, I said, well, we went to the whole thing about, you know, Chuck Buddy, Fats Domino, and, and what is that? What kind of music is that? And then, and what you're saying is niggas can't sing rock and roll. Niggas don't sing rock and roll. Niggas are not allowed to sing rock and roll. What, which, which one are you trying to say? And then that song goes like, okay, I gotta write this song, you know. And particularly um, with this, it was like, wow. And and it just sort of sucked itself into it. And I'm sure that it caused us a lot of problems. One problem was here in Atlanta. And people liked it. People, people, it was like a, a bold statement, you know, that shouldn't be heard right now, maybe later, but not right now. But some some DJ thought it was being he was being funny. And uh, he played that doggone record. And it was in a, one of the biggest department stores <laughs> that, that that this thing was on, and it's just blasting all over the bars. I don't know, and I've been told. And this woman went to the manager. He said, I don't want to see the manager right now about what kind of music you guys are playing. And then Jesse Jackson uh, sent us a, I don't, I don't know how, he didn't call us, but he sent somebody after us. He said, you know, you guys got to settle down. I don't know where you think you're at, but you're in Atlanta, Georgia now. Blah, 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 blah. Okay. So, um, but we never did, we didn't stop doing it. We just didn't like push it. And we weren't trying to lay it on people. And we when we tell this very, very uh, cool story about how it started and the fact that um, it is very interesting that this genre of rock was, was uh, correct me if I'm wrong, had been started by, uh, uh, especially um, 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 Fats Domino and-, and, and, and uh, Chuck Berry. No, 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 what the? Uh, I'm joining. I'm I'm getting old now. Check Barry, little Richard. 
Berry. Chuck Berry is the grandfather, the, the 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 pope of rock and roll. He's he's the ones that the that the Rolling Stones uh, probably came and 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 copied uh, copied after more than anybody. You know that uh, one of the longest living legend rock bands in history. They got their whole thing from from Chuck Berry. I think Chuck Berry probably Chuck Berry alone. I mean, I was. That's where I come from. I come from Chicago. Um, I've seen Chuck Berry live. Guy, every time I probably uh, I could have, you know, that's where the influence come from. Comes from him and anybody else that was, you know, Fats Domino, Little Richard. My God, it was like I was just blown away. That that's the music that I was raised on. You know, I wasn't raised on. I mean, although it was there, mostly blues. First blues, and then. And then uh, black rock, as I know it, and I, what I call it, you know. So, so um, yeah, I was pissed, and so I wanted everybody to know, you know. And and I would, and that would, we would play for audiences of three, four, five thousand people, white people, you know. And I would just like, I I, I thought that was the best time for me to be able to do that. And people's mouths would fly wide open. I, I thought it was, I thought it was wonderful. I, th I thought this is what music is all about, especially back in the sixties and seventies, you know, uh, we had to bitch about a, a lot of things that was low on the totem pole and wasn't nobody holding that up at the time. You know, later everybody was using the word, uh, you know, especially in rap music, but, and nothing else, but, um, uh, uh, and I always have to ask, and and we'll put that song away for a while. It'll be like, we got to bring that back. We got to sing that again. It's time, you know. And I tell you a, a little story too. I know I'm stop me if you want to say anything, but <laughs> but we 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 played DC. We went we wrote, uh, took this long ride up to DC, and we were playing the Howard Theater, and uh, the Howard Theater. Uh, uh, I don't know who it was that got us up there. It was some promoters. And um, Howard Theater is a great little place. It's all made of all wood. It's a, it's a kind of a small balcony. Yeah, you can probably get about 700 people packed to the walls in that place. So we did three shows that day. And um, first show we did, you hardly fill up the, the bottom part. Of the second show, we kind of fill up both. both. And then the third show, the, pack was, the place was it was so hot. There was no air conditioning. And it was glorious. It was fantastic. But before this last show, this one brother who had came to both both shows, and he said, uh, and we were uh, hanging out in the audience on on the edge of the stage, talking to some talking to these brothers. And this one brother, and he was very muscular. He had been lifting weights, and and uh, he wore his hat on the side of his head, and he was very stoned. And he said, Murdoch. I said, yes, sir. He said, Murdoch, he said, uh, I've been listening to y'all and played all the cool songs. He said, but there's one song you haven't played. And you're going to have to play that before you get out of here, son. You know, he might have been a little older than I was. I doubt it. But um, I said, sir, what song is that? He said, niggas can't sing rock and roll. He said, well, what are we doing? He said, this is where I came out. It's two shows, and I'm getting ready to come to third hour. We, do we have that on the list? And I'm going, dude, really? You want me to do that? And I was I was really, really, really not into doing it, you know. But he said, we're going to have a situation if you don't do this song. 
And he, he said, here, this might give you a little courage. He gave me a joint. He said, go back and back and smoke this and do my song next time. And of course I did the song for fear of my life. And people were, they were stunned and they were like, wow. And that got us on the DC. I mean, we every time we went back to DC, we played the venues were bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And we had to do that song, of course, along with the rest of the songs. And, uh, you know, it's a funny thing about having that kind of popularity. Uh, uh, you're always going to be in between the in between. You know, you're not going to you're not going to be allowed to 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 be a, a very popular band because you're going to be a bad influence on and on groups, and you're going to you're going uh, people are going to want to do the same kind of music if we make it popular. So it was uh, we understood later that this was just not going to happen. And then we had to make up our minds when we keep going. And we, for all intents and, intents and purposes, we're going, to, we're going to stand our ground. It would have been boring to do anything else. This was very exciting for us. We enjoy it every bit of it. I have so many thoughts and, and questions for you, Glenn, because, you know, as a um, growing up as a white kid who was really into black music, um, I faced so many of those kinds of uh, racial issues uh, around music and it was always just very frustrating and confusing to me growing up but um you know you weren't totally alone in the 70s you know there was some acts that were you know if not going as far as mother's finest they were doing some of that you know and i'm wondering if you guys paid much attention to people like funkadelic or um early rufus with shaka khan out front kind of like joyce or uh, Max Ann or any of these other bands like that, were you guys, were they on your radar? Were you, were you friends? Were you checking them out? Uh, my, um, what was Miles Davis's, uh, what was her name? Um, God dog it, but she was a rocker too. She was a, a, a black rocker. What was her name? Miles Davis. Betty Davis. Sorry. Sorry, Betty. Yeah. But she's, uh, I, don't, I don't think she's around, but a lot of, uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, you could hardly not. Uh, we were alienated by a lot of the bands that would, you know, I don't know if we want to hang out with you guys or not. Uh, but the, all the underground type bands, Funkadelic, we had great relationship with with, uh, with, with George and the Funkadelics, you know. Uh, we had a um, tenuous relationship with Prince when he came along. He would always, he would always sneak into where we were playing and, 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 and hug the back wall and and swear that he was wasn't there before. But we knew people who knew people there, watching our watching our shows. Um, Leonard Skinner, we had great relationship with Leonard Skinner before they they uh, they had that accident. Um, we um, uh, we traveled with the Who. The Who loved us and wanted to take Joyce home with them. Couldn't happen. Um, and um, I mean, everybody who who had a little edge to them, everybody who was willing to to uh, step out there a little bit, appreciated exactly what we were doing, you know, and and wanted us to do more. ACDC, we played ACDC. We brought us on their tour. P Funk brought us on their tour. We did a we did a tour across Canada with the Who, you know. Um, a lot of bands we played with, like. Um, uh, what was it? Ozzy's Ozzy's uh, band, Black Sabbath. Black Sabbath. <laughs> that was funny because uh, 
that was pretty amazing. Uh, we actually, that was the first and last time we ever actually got stuff thrown at us, you know, and, and it got us holding up a cross in the, in the, in the, in the, in the front row. And this is what happened. We, we went on and I don't know, for some reason, we, we would walk on the stage and there were, you can only see our silhouettes. There was no light shining directly onto us. And uh, when um, we started, we started off, we played half the song in the dark and people were just going crazy. And then when the lights came on at the end of the song, people were like, it was stone quiet, you know? And we knew at that time that we better get on out of here. And uh, we did the next song and, and then the third song was Niggas Can't Sing. And people just kind of freaked out. They just, they were just like, you, there was a murmur. It wasn't like, it, was, it wasn't hate or, or it wasn't uh, 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 consent, but it was a murmur of disbelief, you know? Well, you know, um, I, just, I wanted to say, Glenn, that, you know, one of the really sad things about it too is that, I mean, the situation hasn't even changed that much 40 years later, really. That's um, bad. You know, and is, I was at the uh, Rolling Stones concert in 81 at the Coliseum in Los Angeles when Prince got booed off the stage and stuff was thrown oh, at him wow. and I was so outraged. Um, so it's a sad state of affairs, but, um, you know, thank goodness there are uh, people who are brave like you guys and Mother's Finest and pushed the envelope and, and, and did what's right musically. You know what I mean? 